The New York State budget finally passed this week, more than a month past its due date. And surprise, surprise, no one's super happy with it. Except maybe the suburbs. This is the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Katie Way, a writer-editor for the site. As we talked about in episode four of the pod, go back, give it a listen, New York State has a wild budget process. Basically, every major decision for how the state will govern itself is done through its budget. So this week, my colleagues Chris and Esther spoke with New York Focus senior reporter Sam Mellons, who's been covering this year's budget fight really closely and who gave us the lowdown on what actually happened this year. Sam Mellons is a senior reporter for New York Focus, and we've been reading his Albany coverage all year. It's so good. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, long time listener, first time caller, so glad to be here. I'm also here with Esther Wong. Hi, how are you? She was in Albany earlier this year to cover housing. I guess, let me start with the headline to your budget live blog, Sam, is the suburbs won this year's budget. What do you mean by that? How did the suburbs win? I think there's like three key ways that the New York City suburbs won this budget. Two really big ones, then one sort of smaller one. Two of the really big ones are the changes to the state's bail laws, the bail rollbacks that will make it easier for judges across the state to incarcerate people while they're awaiting trial before they've been found guilty of a crime. Crime or fears of crime have been a really big issue in the suburbs and something that the suburban legislators were pushing heavily for. That's one. And then the other is, some listeners might know that the New York City suburbs are a national leader at not building housing. This is part of a long-running, explicit plan in not all, but many New York City suburbs to keep density low, keep property values high, prevent people with lower incomes from moving into exclusive communities. And This has sort of been one of the third rails of New York politics for a really long time. No one wants to piss off moderate voters, suburban voters. Uh, And the governor decided that she was actually going to try to take this on this year and promote a plan that would require towns across the state to add to their housing supply. Uh, The suburbs and their, their politicians lost their collective minds and succeeded in getting this plan kicked out of the final budget, which I think they saw as a major victory for the suburban way of life. The third thing is that another huge issue in the budget was how to fund the MTA, which is, you know, funded and operated at the state level, not the city level. It's been facing huge deficits of, you know, billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in the coming year. And one part of the package for funding the MTA was increasing the attacks on large businesses that's specifically earmarked for the MTA. Now, the MTA includes the New York City subways and buses and also the Long Island Railroad and the Metro North Railroad. So it serves the suburbs as well as the city. And it actually costs more per rider in the suburbs. The original proposal for this tax hike was that it was going to apply to the places that the MTA serves, the city and the suburbs. Suburbs also hated this. They said, we're not most of the MTA riders. This is really about getting people to jobs in the city. We shouldn't have to pay for this. And they won. The tax is just going to be on the city. How did the suburbs get an upper hand on like New York City in this way in the state legislature? And like which state legislators are we specifically talking about, like from the suburbs who are really sort of wielding wielding power this way? I don't know how the negotiations went down specifically, but the governor has not 
proven herself to be a tactical genius thus far, to put it mildly. You know, there was the whole debacle with her failed chief judge nominee when long after it seemed to me and everyone that I was talking to that the opposition in the state Senate was enough to sink him. She kept pushing for him. She brought out the you know, uh, minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, to rally for him. And then when the vote arrived, every single Democrat except one in the state Senate voted against it. Like, what, what, was, what was the tactical maneuver at work here? And I don't know exactly how it went down with the housing plan, but, you know, it came out, the suburbs collectively said, and some legislators in New York City, you know, so in the more sort of suburban parts, like Eastern Queens and such, said, we hate this, we don't want it. There were few legislators really riding hard for it, like Senator Brad Hoyleman Siegel was one who was really supportive of the plan. Senator Pete Harcum in Hudson Valley supported it to a degree. Assemblymember Phil Ramos from Long Island, he was the unicorn of this of this session, a Long Island lawmaker who supported the plan to add housing. But I think a lot of legislators didn't care that much about it one way or the other. I, I know the chair of the Assembly Housing Committee Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal from the Upper West Side was really more focused on things like good cause eviction and rent vouchers to prevent homelessness than she was on the housing supply measures. So I think she would have been happy enough to see it pass, but wasn't going to go to the mat for it. So when you had this large and really dedicated caucus of opponents in the legislature, a few supporters, and then a lot of ambivalence combined with a governor who does not have a reputation for being a political tactical mastermind, I think that was the right soup of conditions to kill this plan. Sam, you just brought up the the death of good cause. As everybody who lives in this state knows, some more keenly than others, we're in a housing crisis. I went to Albany in April with some activists who were doing a final push for good cause eviction. clearly did not make it into the final budget. What did you think were the chances of it being included this year? It certainly never seemed like a sure thing. It seemed like it had more support than in previous years. The Senate's budget proposal mentioned good cause and some degree of support for it, which had never happened before. The assemblies didn't, but it mentioned wanting to pass tenant protection measures. So it definitely seemed like something was in the air but not exactly an overwhelming tide. I mean, the thing about good cause is that it doesn't have to be part of the budget. So if the legislature really wanted to force the issue, they could just pass it, send it to the governor and say, we dare you to veto it. And then we would have to see what you would do. But it doesn't seem like the votes are there in the legislature to do that. Yeah. And I mean, just since we're on that topic, the governor... She was asked directly, you know, if she was expecting the legislature to do anything about housing post-budget season. And she kind of gave a weird answer where she was like, you know, I, I hope so, but I don't really expect that to happen. So you're saying you don't think that's likely. Like, we're not going to get any sort of push on good cause or the housing compact come late May, June. I know its supporters are going to be pushing for it. And there's always a chance of passing major legislation after the budget. The landmark 2019 rent laws passed after the budget, but it's harder because the budget has to pass. Nothing that happens after that has to pass. On the other hand, I think many people from 
all different sides of the political spectrum were really disappointed that the legislature failed to do anything to address the housing crisis, either in terms of not being there not being enough housing or in terms of the rent being too damn high. Those people are going to continue pressuring the legislature to act. You know, something that I found really interesting is that once it kind of became apparent that housing was not going to really be in the budget at all, you know, neither the housing compact or the cost eviction, a lot of the blame that I saw being thrown around was at the more progressive legislators who had said, we need housing protections in the budget. If we don't get it, nothing else is going to happen with regards to housing. You know, I'm wondering how fair do you think that criticism was? I don't really buy that criticism. It's not the progressive legislators who run the legislature, like really have the final word on what's in the budget. It's the governor and the leaders of the legislature. The progressive legislators were trying to create the atmosphere for a deal that would have included the governor's housing priority and some degree of tenant protections. But I don't think they really are in a position where they are the kingmakers in this process. You just mentioned like the governor and the the two heads of the state legislature, Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Carl Heastie. Like when the budget is getting made, what does that like look like? Is it literally just like their staff in this weird old conference room that smells bad? I, I wish I knew how the conference room spelled because that would mean I'd, I'd been in there. New York's budget process is infamously opaque. It's one of the shortest in the country. It's one of the least transparent in the country. It's very difficult to say anything about how the sausage really gets made. You know, if you're up in Albany, they haunting the state capitol while this is going on. There's a lot of waiting around and then every few hours, if you're lucky, or a few days, if you're not, some person with a leadership position will come and do a formal or impromptu press conference. And you'll say, well, where are you at on climate protection? So they'll say, we're at the middle of the middle of the process. And that's your answer. You have to write it up somehow. So most of what can be said about the sort of hour to hour, minute by minute process of making these decisions is that we don't know how it happens. And we're just told of the result after the fact. And when you say we, you include other legislators in this we, right? Oh, totally. Like many times, you know, I hear, you know, some whisper from some legislator who talked to someone, you know, it's happened like I call it the chair of the committee of the relevant issue. And I say, this is what I'd be hearing. And they say, that's the first I've heard of it. And then five hours later, you know, the a speaker of the assembly will speak to the press and say, yeah, that's what we're doing. And, and I think, wow, people are really not being kept in the loop, including people who supposedly have jurisdiction over these specific issues. Yeah, I feel like one thing that I kind of constantly ask myself is I grew up in Texas. And so is the legislative process in Texas worse than the one here in New York? I feel like often I'm kind of like, yeah, Albany is way worse in terms of how it actually functions. You're just kind of constantly like banging your head against a wall because no one seems to know what's happening at all. Yeah. And, th and then uh, the governor shows up at the press bureau with boxes of Girl Scout cookies, which did actually happen this year. So at least, you know, there's some. Did perks. you did you eat any of those Girl Scout cookies? Do we get a world exclusive right here, right now? Did you have some of the governor's thin mints, Sam? 
Chris, I'm so sorry to tell you I was not in Albany that day. I was crushed. Disappointing. Were they thin mints though? What were they? Oh man, am I gonna get am I gonna get fact checked? <laughs> I I, I believe I believe they were thin mints, but like don't don't call me fake news if they were actually samosas. So the budget was supposed to be done April first. It is now May third, and they just passed it, and it's getting signed basically as we speak. Why did it take so long? What why did huge delay? First of all, they got started kind of late this year. The governor's budget proposal was released later than usual. So then there's less time to work out all the details and negotiations before April 1st. Uh, And then when April 1st came and went, there were a few weeks where there was almost no public progress. And the word that legislative leaders were putting out was the governor really badly wants these bail changes. We're not talking about anything else until those are worked out and we're not making any progress on it. I think that was like two or three weeks in April where that was the only thing that that was happening, at least as far as the public was aware. Once that happened, it was already a few weeks late and there was a bit of a log jam on housing, but that was resolved pretty quickly when the governor essentially pulled her entire housing plan. And then there were like slightly more than a few days, if at all, to resolve everything else in the budget. And now here we are, early May and the budget's finally being passed. Yeah. And like, while all this is happening, the lawmakers are like going to Albany and then coming home and then going to Albany and coming home. When they go home, like, does do negotiations essentially stop or like, do they leave some people behind or like, do you know how that process works? Yeah. I think often the legislative leaders and the governor and their staffs will stay and, you know, continue hashing things out. Whereas if you're a, you know, Honestly, in some cases, even quite a senior legislator, you're kind of you're kind of out of the loop. So there's not really a lot of reason for you to be there, and you're just sort of dismissed until they need you to until they need you back to pass a bill that says, okay, we're we're funding the the government for another five days while we try to finalize this. Okay, no, that wasn't enough. Okay, another week, and then eventually they have a deal for you to read and vote on within 24 hours. What's the men's bathroom like in Albany? The women's bathroom is quite nice. I found. Oh well, I mean, which one? Because you know. Difference between the the third floor and the fourth floor is enormous. What about the second floor? Have you ever been to that one? Oh, gosh. Uh, Really, really straining my memory here. You don't remember every bathroom that you walk into, Sam? Come on. Um, There's one where you're the capital sort of on top of this hill, about maybe half a mile from the Hudson. State Street runs from the capital to the Hudson. It's like sort of one of the main drags in Albany. And there's one where you go to the window, you're looking out over State Street down to the river, it's quite nice. That's behind the press chambers on the third floor. So I, I do recommend that if, if anyone finds themselves there. Hi there. This is Katie again. I know you like our podcast so far. And wouldn't you like even more Hellgate in your life? Subscribe. Hellgate is New York City's only worker-owned news site. Our goal is to bring our readers stories that are trenchant, playful, outraged, irreverent, useful, and never a chore to read. Go to hellgatenyc.com slash products to subscribe. Okay, back to the podcast. You talked a little bit about how Governor Hochul is not like the world's best political strategist or whatever. And we would read story after story this past year, whether it's her like gubernatorial campaign or the LaSalle vote. There's always like a line in these stories like, no one really can explain what the governor is thinking. Like, is this 12D chess or is this just stupid? And then last week we read in the Times that 
the governor had this like political strategist living in Colorado who was kind of, I guess, really influential in, in terms of like her decision making process. He's gone or fired or whatever happened to him. Like, do you think that he's kind of to blame here for this budget stuff happening, for her not being able to get everything she wants or for it being really late or like, or is he just a kind of a convenient scapegoat? I don't know. It was a great story. Props to Nick Fandos at the Times for recording it. One thing I will say, if we compare the governor to her predecessor, for his flaws, he definitely knew Albany and knew New York City and state politics and how the levers operated really well. And people knew that if you went up against him, that could be a very dangerous decision, both to your career and in some cases to your emotional well-being from what I've heard. He used that very effectively to get what he wanted, which sometimes was stymieing progressive priorities. Uh, Other times it was bullying the Republican state Senate into raising the minimum wage to $15, you know, the first state of any in the country to do that. So we definitely have a difference in how well the governor understands the levers of power from administration to administration, whether or not that's attributable to an advisor in Colorado. Sam, I'm curious to hear from you since you are so plugged in. What have you heard from sources beyond, oh yeah, Kathy Hochul's just bad at politics, that kind of explains, you know, some of the political decisions that she's made. It's about her genuine political convictions. You know, she has always been a moderate, and that's how she's governing the state. She's governing as a moderate Democrat. She's not a progressive. And I think she has a a team that is committed to a broadly pro-business agenda that shapes a lot of her decisions. Yeah. And and speaking of pro-business agenda, you've also done a great job covering a lot of the sort of corporate giveaways that have been larded into state government recently. This budget has some big ticket items for corporations. Do you want to tick through like the top two or three that are the most obscene, I guess is is a word for it? Or Yeah. So chock full of subsidies in this budget and corporate welfare, some call it. There's... $7 billion plus over the next 10 years to the film industry. There's uh, hundreds of millions over the next three years to Broadway musicals, about half a billion dollars uh, over the next two decades, although it's a loan that's going out the door sooner than that, to the horse racing industry. Uh, There's a few others around the margins, but those are some of the big ones. The horse racing one, (laughs) you've you've done a lot of reporting on on basically the horse racing industry has presented these sort of economic studies that say that, look, like once we get this money, everything's going to be totally fine. It's going to be an engine for economic activity. Like it's going to create all these jobs. It almost seems like self-evident, but like, why would we not trust a report written by the horse racing industry? Yeah. The claims that the horse racing industry has been making to justify this subsidy just fly in the face of all available evidence. The load is to renovate a horse racing track on Long Island. Like to, you know, tear down the, the grandstand and build a new one, basically. Belmont. Bel- yeah, the, the Belmont, home of the, the famous Bell Love Stakes, second leg of the Triple Crown. They claim that once they do this, attendance will increase by 70%. Okay. Attendance has consistently declined by millions for the last 40 years. 
what's like what what why, why would anyone believe this it's so absurd they they claim that, that there'll be 740 new jobs I've repeatedly asked for evidence to substantiate that claim. They've never provided any. One of my favorites was they said in the, the study says there'll be a, a, a hotel on the property that will generate $45 million in revenue a year. Uh, you know, all this economic benefit. I interviewed the study's author and I said, okay, this hotel, when is it going to be built? When, when will it open? What could you tell me about it? And he said, Oh, that's a hypothetical example of what you could do on this space with this money. Uh, sorry, a, a hypothetical hotel? Like, it, it, it's just absurd. Sam, it sounds like you've never bet on a long shot in one, okay? I think you need to take a trip on out to Belmont and, you know, put your $2 down and catch catch the fever. With, with you, Chris, I would, if, if, you, if you'll pick for me. <laughs> if you'll pick for me. Have you, been, have you been out to Belmont before? No, no, I have not yet made it out to the races so you're not you're saying you're not a horse girl like Kathy Hogle yeah I don't know I I wonder if she enjoys the races I'm not sure legislation usually has to be aged for three days before it's passed that doesn't happen with the budget simply because like lawmakers want to get out of there the governor wants to get passed this is also how like some wacky stuff is sometimes sort of put in these 10 budget bills that make up the budget and has anything like particularly weird come over your transom in recent days when you're like, whoa, what the what the fuck is this? No one was talking about this two weeks ago. Like, what's going on with this? Yeah. So my colleague Chris Delardi was reporting on this that, you know, last Thursday, Hochul gave her press conference, you know, her sort of like her solitary victory lap on the budget, the New York Times called it, where she said that they had reached a conceptual agreement for a framework on the budget. Love it. Yeah. You know, uplifting rhetoric. Uh, and she sort of previewed the bail changes, the the, roll, the rollbacks to the 2019 bail reforms that she had been pushing for. And then when the budget came out, Chris, when the actual bills came out, Chris was reading the bail language and he said, wait, wait a second, this is way more extensive than anything that she was speaking about. Uh, he talked to some sources in the legislature who said, yeah, this is more extensive than we heard about. And it's not you know, you can read his coverage on our site for more. It's not a sea change in New York's bail law, but it does provide more avenues to set bail and restrictive conditions on people before their trials than I think the general public had previously been aware of. You know, I think progressives lost on housing pretty big. Are there any items in the budget that you think progressives, especially progressives in New York City, would consider a win? I think the big one is the Build Public Renewables Act. That's been a top priority of progressive climate activists for a little while now. It gives the state the authority to build renewable energy facilities, you know, towards the goal of reducing emissions according to requirements that the state passed into law in 2019. I think a lot of people were taking a victory lap on that one. I think there's some other things that were sort of compromises that didn't go as far as progressives were pushing for, but that that they made some progress on, like uh, boosting the minimum wage to 17 and indexing it to inflation, fully funding a uh, financial aid for public schools. I think fending off a few things that really sort of angered progressives when they were in the governor's budget proposal was a win like tuition increases at New York's public university and extending the 421A tax break. So I think uh, sort of 
guess you could call it a negative win uh, in those categories. I think it's good that the MTA is not going to be a complete shit show disaster for hopefully the next four years. And there's a little bit of, you know, we get the free bus pilot, even though it's shorter. Five free free bus lines. And the bus cameras are now going to be able to ticket anyone illegally parked in the bus's path, basically, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, I feel like the latter would probably be more important ultimately than a few free buses, right? Like, who would want to take a free bus if it takes, like, an hour to get from point A to point B? Right. And and it also encourages this idea that, like, the buses suck, so they should be free. When it's like, no, the buses should be awesome and they should be worth something. But right now, they just are awful. Sam, thank you so much for your reporting and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Woof. So, yeah, progressives lost big on housing in the budget statewide. But at least things are better on the city level. Not. I actually got an in-person taste of how dire the situation is for a certain segment of tenants in New York City. The one million people living in rent-stabilized housing. Their rent increases are decided by a board appointed by the mayor. Every year, that Rent Guidelines Board holds a series of hearings and votes twice on how much landlords who own rent-stabilized buildings are allowed to raise rent. And at this week's preliminary vote, housing activists assembled to harass that board and call for rent rollbacks. Honestly, it was a scene. After tenant organizers spent the first half hour of the vote hearing chanting so loud that it was impossible to hear the board members, there was an even bigger disruption. The Rent Justice Coalition, plus city council members Chia Say, Sandy Nurse, Tiffany Caban, Shahana Hanif, and Alexa Aviles stormed the stage and read testimonials from struggling tenants in rent-stabilized housing. The board looked pissed. There were a couple Rent Guidelines board members that the crowd was willing to hear out. Adon Soltran and Genesis Aquino, who were both appointed to the board to represent tenants. Soltran and Aquino spent their time pushing back against the idea that landlord profits should be prioritized over tenants' entire lives, which was refreshing. This debate about rent adjustments is contextualized based on a false equivalency. Over the decades, RPG chairpersons, different mayoral administrations, and board members themselves all make the offensive mistake of comparing the struggle of working class black and brown people against the performance of an individual person or corporate entity's investment portfolio. Unfortunately, there are many 
tenants like my mother, who is a home attendant, earning $16 an hour, paying 60%, 63% of her income towards rent. Unless I support my mother's household, she's at risk of getting evicted from her rent stabilized apartment. Just like she was in 2019, 2016, and 2017. Please remember that our board is not an eviction machine. Our job is to regulate the brutal capitalist market that commodifies housing and crushes the working class Still, you know, the game was rigged. The majority of the board backed big rent increases, 2 to 5% for tenants on a one-year lease and 4 to 7% for tenants with two-year leases. While it's technically just a preliminary vote, the past few years have shown that the final rent increase tends to match up with that vote's outcome, which is bad news for tenants already living on the edge. But the elected officials and the tenant organizers who showed up and showed out didn't seem deterred by the end result. They seemed galvanized. Here's Councilmember Shahana Hanif and rent-stabilized housing residents Laura and Dennis. This is New York City, and this is what we do. We demand our dignity, and we must continue to speak up because we are in a place where bureaucrats, those in leadership, these are the mayor's appointees. Mm -hmm. People should understand that. This is a message from the mayor. Mm -hmm. These are his people. This is his word to New Yorkers saying, I don't care about y'all. You figure it out. Leave if you have to. Yeah. I grew up in New York, but I just moved back April 1st. Mm -hmm. And like, only been there one month. And, uh, really wasn't in the budget when I <laughs> took the place for there to be a six, potentially a 16% rent increase. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And can I ask what you're paying now? 16.50. Gotcha. And do you live by yourself? Yeah, it is a one bedroom. Yeah. Gotcha. Which was like a I I felt I feel deal. very lucky. So I'm here I'd say mostly because I know there are a lot of other people in rent stabilized apartments that yeah. are their margins are way tighter than mine. Did you know about the action that was going to happen today? No. I <laughs> knew there would be tenant enthusiasm, and I did not know there would be a storming of the stage. Yeah, And I was yeah. really excited. We were fewer in numbers, but mm. higher in energy. So just before COVID, uh, there would be so much um, turnout. Yeah. But this time around, there's so much energy. When Are there any other times you bring the cowbell out? I often bring the cowbell out. If, um, if there's a... Um, a time for tenants to make noise, mm-hmm. I bring out the cowbell. So. Hell yeah, awesome. All right, that's it for this week's Hellgate podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Nick Pinto, Max Rivlin-Nadler, Christopher Robbins, Esther Wong, and me, Katie Witt. Nadia Tykolsker is our business manager. Lauren Vespoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutchphrase Studio. During the week, check out hellgatenyc.com for daily reporting, in-depth investigations, and more stories about, you guessed it, New York City. And if you like this show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.